Good morning. Last week, we started a new short series that is really built around a single question. Why bother with the church? The simple answer from last week was because Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against it, the church. So the reason we bother with it is there is something of life because of the head, the leader of the church. And we reflect that life. That's why we gather. So in essence, we were sitting in the shadows of the slum of sin on our way to hell. And Jesus, the Prince of Life, saved us, called us, redeemed us. That's what the church is. It's a redeemed people. So that's why we bother with the church, because the gates of hell, the very gates of the realm of death will not overcome it because Jesus who said this in Revelation 1, who was dead, is alive forevermore. And guess who holds the keys to death in Hades? Read Revelation chapter 1. Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our King, our Savior. Taking that thought a little farther, we're going to ask again this morning, why bother with the church? And we're going to try to answer this morning from Scripture because of what the church is in its essence, in its most simple form. Sometimes we just can't see what others can see clearly. Has that ever happened to you? Everybody else sees it. And for some reason, you can't see it. Uh, Some people lack situational awareness. They don't know what's going on around them. They don't. They don't know that there's actually danger within 20 yards of them. Some people are just clueless to that. They lack situational awareness. Others lack personal awareness, right? They just don't know how they're coming across or they don't know that they really lack any sense of personal boundaries. They're just not aware of that. And so hopefully they have friends that will come along and help them with personally assessing who they are and how they're coming across. You know, many people lack spiritual awareness. They fail to look with the eyes of faith to see a spiritual world that exists around them. So that when they come to a verse that says the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but spiritual, it just goes right over their head because they're living all for what is here and now that can be seen and tasted and touched. Sometimes we just can't see what others can see. I know this personally. I have deutronopia. Does anybody know what deutronopia is? Deutronopia is red-green colorblindness, which means I can't see Christmas. Right? So some of you are are tracking this morning. Uh, Red-green doesn't mean I can't see specific reds or specific greens, but they all start to bunch together. And that's why my mom would give me coloring pages that look like this as a child. Tough crowd this morning. <laughs> Coloring pa- black and white, right? We see that. No, and she didn't do that. She's probably streaming. My mom did not do that. This is also called Coloring Pages for Lazy People, right? <laughs> hey, I'm d- Okay. Um, for instance, let me show you something that I don't see. Next slide. So I see a number 12. And I see, well, maybe a... Okay, I don't see any other numbers on this screen. 
Um, and on a clear screen, I'll see um, maybe a number two. And then the next circle, there's nothing. And on the two bottom circles, there's nothing for me. This is a Deuteronopia test. Okay. Matter of fact, I wasn't even sure this illustration would work, so I had to call other family members. And I'm like, are there actually numbers in these circles? Because I don't want the illustration to fail. How many of you see numbers? <laughs> and, and, and me and three others are like, there are no numbers in those circles. Sometimes we just can't see what other people see, right? Do you know sometimes we are church blind in the sense that we don't see what the church really is? Other people see it. And we're just missing it because we're looking at it through a different lens. But if we don't identify the church right, everything that follows out of the church life, everything that we do will be out of alignment. That's why I like the metaphor that is often used of a building. Right. There's several metaphors. We're going to look at those in another sermon. Uh, But the metaphor of a building is used for the church. Who is the cornerstone of the church? There's only one cornerstone and everything, every measurement is taken from that sort of like a benchmark in land surveying. Right. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. It is built on the rock. Matthew 16, verse 18 of Peter's confession of who Jesus is. And that's why I think the foundations in Ephesians are the apostles and the prophets. They're right preaching. They're right estimation of who Jesus is and their accurate preaching of what the gospel is. And then the entire structure growing into a holy temple of the Lord are individual, what Peter calls living stones. It's a metaphor. So how do we get to a place where we're even wondering if we should bother with that, the church of which Christ is the cornerstone and it's built on the apostles and the prophets And we are living stones of it. How do we get to a point where we're like, should I even bother with that anymore? Well, what do we even mean by the word church? When I ask bother with the church, what are we talking about? And last week we looked at the first mention of the church. It's a New Testament reference, Matthew 16, 18. It's found in the first New Testament book of the Bible, the first of four Gospels, Matthew than Mark, Luke, John, it is spoken by Jesus Christ himself, the head of the church that we saw in Colossians chapter one, the founder leader. Jesus uses the word church, interestingly, before the church was, in a sense, officially established in Acts chapter two and before it gained further structure that it that that you see in sort of these letters written to churches, the letters to the Corinthians, for example, or the letter to the church at Ephesus, or to the, the smaller letters in Revelation to seven different churches, or Galatians. And here's what I find extremely encouraging as a lead pastor of a local church. Jesus said he would build it. That means I don't have to be a Mark Zuckerberg in the pulpit. I don't have to engineer its growth. I simply have to obey what Jesus said. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Okay, how is Christ going to build his church? People are going to become follower learners because Jesus is going to call people and they are going to place their faith in him. 
And they're going to gather together, and that is the church in its, in its essence. Okay, that's last week. He would build it, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Meaning, these who gather have been called out of death into life. Jonathan Lehman, in his book, Rediscover Church, said this, If you had asked me in my early days, what is a church? I could not have given you a well-formed answer. But these two ideas of preaching and people, a gospel word and a gospel society, are growing in prominence in my mind. A church, I knew, has something to do with a group of people gathering to be shaped by God's word. That way, they begin to live together as a different kind of people, one that's both in and not of the world. So depending on what view we look through to define the church or try to understand what the church is, will determine how our life really is shaped. For some people, they talk about joining a church like they would go into the front doors of Costco and get a membership. Or they talk about going to a church as if Monday through Saturday, the church is insignificant, but now we're actually arriving at a building or enjoying a church as if it's a show, a set of songs, a, a kind of liturgy or some motivating speech. But when we're done with that, we're done. The church is just down the street. And those are all problematic and in some ways peculiar to our culture. Our culture shapes our view of everything, really, if we if we allow it, if we're not allowing scripture to be our final authority for faith and practice, then our ideas and our thoughts and our expectations are going to be shaped by other things. Each of us views the church through a different lens. Do you ever remember as a child being curious about somebody's corrective lenses, eyeglasses, spectacles? I don't know what they're called today. Do you ever pick up your grandparents' pair of spectacles and think, oh, this is cool, and then you put them on and you almost see nothing? Can you recall that day? I mean, as a matter of fact, it's so distorted and blurry, it hurts your eyes and you feel dizzy. And you, and you take them off real quick like, that is not what I was expecting. Sometimes we can do that with our view of the church. Let me just cover five lenses through which people view the church. The first lens, and I want to move through these quickly so that we can land on what the Scripture teaches at the end and apply it. The first lens that we are in danger of viewing the church through is consumerism. Consumerism simply is the protection or promotion of the interests of consumers. Consumers view the church as a marketplace. It puts Jesus on the shelves it gives us options. It gives us varieties. Like a Chinese buffet or your favorite coffee shop. If it doesn't have what you like, for instance, one of my favorite Chinese buffets is near my parents in Brevard, North Carolina. And the reason I love it is because they have free sushi. And it's decent sushi. All you can eat for the price of a Western North Carolina Chinese buffet. But what if we went to a Chinese buffet this afternoon and they didn't have sushi? All I have to do as a consumer, after I leave a bad rating, I wouldn't do that, but I could yelp Chinese places with sushi. That's all I need to do. 
And I probably don't have to drive any further than about three miles to get what I want. It's the life. It's the culture we live in. It's like fish don't even know they're wet. We don't even know how much our culture has shaped us into being consumers that we actually begin to view the church through that lens. If we can't find what we'd like at King Super, we could go to Safeway or to Trader Joe's or to Sam's or to Costco. If I don't find what I like at this church, then I can drive just a couple miles and I can get it at this church or that church or that church. Do you see how common this becomes? How much we're actually looking through this lens. The end result is that the church is viewed as a shopping mall. This is the question consumerism asks. Do I like the product? Am I happy? Does it have what I want? I mean, we can even give Google ratings to individual churches, five stars, three stars, one stars. Um, really, we're rating, we're rating churches now based upon our consumer satisfaction. Jesus said, I will build my church. And, and this is where I want to remind us the danger of looking through that lens But when the Son of God, the eternal Son, says He's building something, guess what? It's being built. And and we can either look through the wrong lens or a biblical lens and realize He's actually building it. It's just not what I expected it to look like. As a matter of fact, He's building His church. And it's so important to Jesus that it's the body for which He died. He actually purchased it, Acts 20, 28, with his blood. He loves the church. But if we're looking through the lens of consumerism, we might miss what he's doing, not only in Asia and Africa, but what he's doing right here in Centennial. Consumerism says, if I'm not pleased with the menu, the service or the product, then why bother with the church? The second lens through which people view the church is individualism, okay, being independent or self-reliant. Now, I will champion this in many areas of life. You be, really, you, you be who God made you to be in all the individual righteous expressions of that, right? Don't just go with the majority. I mean, there's, there's so many ways where, where individualism it can be a strength, but not in a community that is called to be interdependent. Or as Ephesians says, submitting yourselves one to another. Individualism says, I'll do church where I want, how I want, and when I want. Um, Some Christians don't even see the need to gather anymore because in, and this is where it connects with consumerism, there are options that actually please them better, please them individually Better, it's not giving thought for the others, it's only giving thought to the self. And honestly, and let me be be fair here, it is a lot less hassle, isn't it? We're not all alike. We're just not. Um, But we have one thing in common, and it's the one reason we gather It's a lot less trouble, but it's in the community, the interdependent community, where we practice the one another's. For example, it is the interdependence of this community where I am told to love one another. And you're told to love me even when I'm 
unlovely. To bear with one another. You know what that means? It means there's going to be times when we interact with each other and we have to put up with it. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Instruct one another. Carry each other's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. Which means we're going to sin against each other. Through love, serve one another. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which means we have gathered together to do that exact thing. And we have already done that this morning. Individualists say, why bother with the church? I don't need the burden and the hassle of dealing with others. I certainly don't want to serve others. Why bother with the church? The third lens through which people view the church is traditionalism. Doing what we have always done the way we have always done it. The danger here is it, is it tends to emphasize the church as a sacred place or a sacred building. It's more about steeples, professional clergymen, familiar liturgy and relics. It finds comfort in antiquated practices and moral codes that are passed down from generation to generation to generation without any question whether the applications of those biblical principles from 1962 are even relevant and helpful today. It rarely occurs to some believers that churches in Asia and Africa have none of those things. They have preaching but no pulpit because they're gathering under a tree today. Or they go from house to house to avoid persecution. They sing but they memorize the very few songs they have because they don't have the money to purchase prints of those or it's too burdensome to carry hymn books with them. Their songs are from a culture and a language that do not stem from the very good English hymnody of the 18 and 1900s. And they don't have a classification for teens because you're either a child or you're an adult. Let's be clear. Fundamental doctrines don't change. They're fundamental. They're core to what we believe. But application stemming from those truths will change from generation to generation and culture to culture. They are not fundamental and absolute. Uh, traditionalists, if we look through the, the, the lens of traditionalism, um, that, that person usually has difficult being culturally relevant even when core truth is not compromised. Core truth doesn't change, ministry tactics do. For example, years ago when we decided to remove our evening service, I was asked to go out by an individual, at that time a member, and the first time I was invited to go out, so your, your pastoral red flags go off like, okay, this, we're making a very big change in the life of this church, and now we're going out. And I was asked, well, I was told, he says, I strongly disagree with your decision, and I graciously responded, and he was gracious in his asking me, that, telling me, he strongly disagreed with me, and I said, sir, unless I'm mistaken, you've nev never gathered with us on a Saturday evening, not even once. And he said, oh, no, you're right. I haven't. But I believe the church I'm a member of ought to have an evening service. I'm like. Just confused. 
I'm not saying evening services are, are right or wrong. In some ways, they're effective. We never had one uh, in Africa for other reasons. But if a church has an evening service, it does not make them traditionalist. But someone who's saying, I'm going to vote with my feet and never be there, and I'm going to leave a church over you canceling that, I'm saying you're looking through the wrong lens. You've misunderstood what the church really is. The fourth lens through which people view the church is pragmatism. This is simply doing what works or what others say works. The target is usually growth without any principles governing that growth. Large buildings, success determined by outward gauges. Whatever attracts is good. Whatever sort of whittles down the group is bad. The church simply needs to flex and give people what they want. And the question I would have in all of these, is that really what we see in the New Testament? Is that really what Jesus passed down to his disciples? Is that what Jesus, the head of the church, commissioned his body and individual members of it to be and to do? Pragmatism reasons. If we just had this speaker in or this musician or this program or this staff position, then we would grow. And if not, we're going to be ineffective. There, there is some truth. By the way, here's the danger, right? And each one of these what? There's a kernel of truth and help and even health. But if we look through that lens alone, we're going to come up with a distorted view of what the church is. Again, sometimes we fail to see, and I'll show you the circles again, uh, what others can clearly see. I might see partly a 12 and a 2. And I'm going to need you then to come along and help me see what's in box or circle 3, 4, and 5. Because even after 15 minutes, I can't see any numbers in those circles. And we need to come alongside each other with the Scripture and say, hey, brother, sister, I think you might be missing it. Because the head, the leader of the church has said this is what the church is. And I, I don't think you're getting it entirely wrong, but I think it's distorted or I think you're missing a circle. Let, let's go to the scripture and see what we're actually talking about when we talk about the church. There's a fifth lens and it's the biblical lens. Right. The church is a group of people gathered to be shaped by God's word. So you remember the old nursery rhyme, right? Here's the church. Right here's the steeple. Look inside. There's all the fingers. No people. Right. Um, oh, open the door. There's it's, it's cute. It's not biblical. Right. Because you can remove the steeple and the building, the roof, apparently, and the door. And guess what? You're still the church. I had a very radical idea uh, during my time away that I think I wisely decided not to do. And that was on a Sunday morning. Have the lights off, the chairs removed, and everybody just comes in and sits on the floor in the dark. No instruments, no amplification. Somebody opens up a hymn book, right? We still know how to find hymn 98, okay? And we just sing a cappella. Welcome to the, to, to the rest of the world in some ways. And then I started thinking about our elderly sitting on the floor and my shepherd's heart took over and I thought it was a good radical idea, but, but one I'll use in an illustration rather than illustrate. 
You know, you can remove the steeple. All the building, the band, the lights, the programs, the banquets, the conferences, the bulletins, the background music, all our different Bible studies. And you still have Christ Church. And if we at some point in history have to go down to 25 people and meet under a tree at Clarkson Park. We're still the church. So look around. This is the church. This is who we are. And we have a leader and his name is Jesus Christ. So what is the church really? I'm going to go through a lot of verses in a short amount of time. So if you have your, your, your scripture or your, your, your device, follow along with me. Remember, we're going to use the word ekklesia. It's the Greek word that is used to translate church 114 times in the New Testament. It's built on two word, words, ek out of and kaleo to call. We are called out of something together. We gather together. Two questions. How is that word used in Scripture those 114 times? Don't worry, we are not going to look at all of those this morning. And then secondly, because, because how the Scripture uses the term is how we're going to define it. Okay? And secondly, in preparation for communion, what are we called out from and to? First, in the broadest and most basic sense, ecclesia, church, called out, refers to any assembly of people. Not just for religious purposes, any assembly of people. Acts 7.38 and Hebrews 2.12 also use the term ecclesia to describe Old Testament assemblies. The word was often used in Greek cities to refer to assemblies called to perform specific tasks. That's another sermon. What are we called as the church to do? We're called to be something or we actually are something because of Christ and we're called to do something. Luke uses ecclesia, the church, three times to describe the riot that gathers together in the amphitheater in Ephesus. That's found in the book of Acts. Of the 114 times that ecclesia is used in the New Testament, 109 of those refer to a Christian Assembly. For our understanding, the word is used in three distinct ways within those hundred and nine times. OK, this is going to be the bulk of the second part of the sermon. First, the usage of the word ecclesia denotes the entire body of God's people everywhere, whether in heaven or on earth. OK, often called the universal church, not the denomination but just all believers everywhere for all time living on the globe right now and those in heaven. This answers the question, who makes up the church? Not what makes up the church, but who and, and, and what is the difference? Well, the church may be defined as I like this definition that Wayne Grudem uses the community of all true believers in Jesus Christ for all time. And don't let that confuse you. Okay, let me let me let me let me bring clarity with a simple question. Can anyone ever go to heaven without Jesus Christ? No. He says he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through him. Okay? So so the the New Testament uses the church to refer to all believers everywhere for all time. For example, the Bible says in Ephesians 5.25 that Christ loved the church and gave himself up 
for her. Do you know it would not be good news if we just found out that Jesus only died for members of Highlands Baptist Church? That would be so sad, right? No, he died for all who would either pass, look forward to a future Messiah or us looking back on the resurrected Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That's the church, the community of all true believers in Jesus Christ for all time. Grudem continues, that necessarily includes all true believers for all time, both believers in the New Testament age and believers in the Old Testament age. Okay, secondly, of the three usages, the word ecclesia denotes the whole body of those throughout the world who profess faith in Christ right now. Okay, we call this the global church. If, if you want to think of it this way, it's the visible society on earth. And that church is large. It's not as big as the universal church. But right now, you are a brother to or a sister to thousands of believing Asians, thousands of believing Africans, thousands of believing Europeans. That church is worshiping Jesus Christ today, the true church. For example, in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty-eight, the Apostle Paul writes, God has appointed... In the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. He's not referring to all believers of all time, including the Old Testament, but he's talking about a distinct time in the history of redemption, the church. Or as he says in Ephesians 4.11, he, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers for building up the body of Christ. That was a specific point in time. The third of the three usages of the word ecclesia refers to. And by the way, this is the usage that is used most often. It refers to a church like ours. A distinct local assembly meeting in a specific location for a specific purpose. A distinct group of people so that we know whether we have a majority of this church here this morning or not. That usage will be used in the New Testament as we'll see in another sermon as well. We call this the local church. For example, in Acts 14, 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, individual local assemblies, or in Romans 16, 3 to 5, I give thanks. OK, or, or let me read this. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles, individual distinct gatherings. Or in 1 Corinthians 16, the churches of Asia, specific churches within a specific geography. Or Colossians 4.15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea into Nympha and the church in her house. Very specific location. And we could go on and on. So here's what we need to understand this morning. Why bother with the church? Because of what the church is. God has sovereignly authorized the church to gather for the purpose of displaying his glory and the glory of his gospel throughout his world. Now, in closing, in preparation for our communion service that will be at 1130, I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 1-2. Paul writes to the church, so this is, this is going to answer the question, what have we been called out of and to? To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus Christ, called 
to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. How many of you, if I called on you and I won't, could say could tell me something about the Corinthian church that Paul wrote to? How many of you could just say, I mean, how, how many of you would have something glowingly positive to say about the Corinthian church? Google rating five stars. Great experience. Unity of leadership. No sin issues. Right. Five star Google. No, we wouldn't do that. We know enough about the Corinthian church to say it was messed up. You know, what's also interesting. In two letters, God through Paul never said, you need to get out of there. You need to go. You need to go down the road because there's there's a more holy people. As a matter of fact, look what it says in First Corinthians one, two. They're called to be saints. Do you know what saints means? Well, it means after you've done enough work and the church leadership gets together and we think you're deserving of the title after you die, of course, isn't that convenient that we say, no, that's not what it means. When, 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 when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, he takes your sin. He gives you his holiness. And you're a saint. So I'm looking out at St. Michelle and St. Rob, St. Jeffrey. We won't say that, right? It sounds funny, but it's the truth. We're not saints because of how we lived the last seven days. We're saints because of our identity in Christ. By the way, that's going to help us understand what the church is also called to be saints. A saint is a holy one. But our holiness is from nothing we've done or can do. You know what the church has been called out from? Our identity in sin, slaves to sin, waiting to pay the payment of our sin, which is death. And he's called us into life. And when you're in Christ, the gates of hell can't prevail against you because you're in the Prince of Life. Second Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. First Peter 2.24 and 25, He Himself, Jesus, bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned. You've been called out of that wandering back to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Do you see how beautiful these images are? That's what the church is. We are believers in Christ. Colossians 1, 13 to 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's what you've been called out of and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. And isn't this a great reminder, even for believers, the forgiveness of sins. He cares for the church of God, so he asks shepherd leaders to care for it, too, because he obtained it with his own blood. That's how special and how precious it is. We gather together to make that gospel visible we do that in a specific way this morning. We gather together to make the gospel visible through one of his sovereignly ordained ordinances. There are two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Both are vivid pictures of the gospel. Matter of fact, his, his church historians have been able to boil down the marks, the basic marks of what a church is to two headings. The right preaching of God's word. And the right administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Everything else can be addressed underneath those. The right preaching of God's worth is God's truth, his gospel proclaimed. And the right administration of the ordinances is Christ's work 
displayed or pictured. At the start of training camp in 1961, and many of you know this quote, it's that iconic. Vince Lombardi walked into the locker room of the Green Bay Packers and said to his team what would become one of the most memorable sports quotes, gentlemen, this is a football. He was bringing them back to the basics, bringing them back to the fundamentals that don't change. Because if you don't get the fundamentals right, everything else will be out of alignment. And I want to say, brothers and sisters, this is the church. Jesus Christ is its head. We are his people. It is the right preaching of his word, and it is the right practice or the right administration of the ordinances. So let me make three quick applications, and then I'm going to invite the music team forward. And I want you to hear this well. I don't want you to hear part of this and sort of be disturbed when you leave. And and this is going to be partly sensational, but I want you to hear it. If you're wondering this morning if it's more important to attend a ladies' Bible study this week or observe communion with the gathered church, one of those is more important. One of those takes precedence because of what we see in the Scripture. And it's to observe communion. That one really is more fundamental. You can do both. You can do both. We actually, as, as elders, encourage both and make room for that to happen. Neither is unimportant. But do, do we understand that we are not an unbiblical church if we don't have a lady's Bible study, but we would be if we fail to observe communion together? I want us to see biblically through that lens. Or if you're wondering what should take precedence, either join the new men's Bible study this Thursday at 9 a.m. or display to one another Christ's death through the bread and the cup this morning. It is the Lord's Supper. I'd love to see men gathering together Thursday morning, reading the Gospel of Mark together and sharing life. But if we never have a specific men's ministry program and we are rightly preaching the Word to a gathered assembly and rightly administrating baptism and communion, we are still the church. Or if you really don't have time to take your team to the student ministry opportunity midweek and stay and eat this meal with your brothers and sisters in Christ and instead eat Chick-fil-A that's being hosted Wednesday, that is a shameless plug. then I'm going to encourage you, families, to stay and observe communion. And I'm going to be there Wednesday because I think it's very important. Extremely important. But there are churches in Africa and Asia now that never even had a teen program. But they're rightly preaching God's Word. And they're rightly observing the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they are every bit the church as a stateside assembly doing those two things that might have a student ministry of 800 kids. Again, all those are important, but one is essential. And it's the Lord's Supper. So church, let's look through a biblical lens. Let's understand we have a head, a leader. His name is Jesus Christ. We are individual members of that body. When one member suffers, we all suffer. Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the cornerstone. Let's pray.